I want to encourage you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this morning as we have been tracking through the book of Genesis in this series that we've titled Foundations. And as we've been looking at the foundations of how God has set forth and created and purposed this world. And of course, I told us in week one that I got the the idea for the, the title from the book of Job. When Job begins to question God and God responds in saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And so this is what we see in particularly these first three chapters in Genesis hold so much truth and insight into our life and into how things are the way they are now and how we are called to live in light of these truths. I genuinely have loved preparing and shaping and kind of moving forward in this series. As I, again, I'll remind us, we're moving through the book of Genesis in 12 weeks. And so that leaves many of you probably pondering, like we're on week three, we're on chapter three. There's a lot more than just 12 chapters in the book of Genesis. And as I've said from the beginning, that this allows us to look at some things through a microscope and some things through a magnifying glass. And so we've very much been taking that microscope approach these first three weeks. But as we move forward from here, we'll definitely be looking more through a magnifying glass and looking at some of the different characters and the way that God is at work in their lives and and the way he's at work to bring about his purposes and his glory. And so this morning's chapter is undoubtedly a heavy one as it is full of so many truths and hard truths for us to think about. But it's also a chapter which lays the foundation for our understanding, as I've said, of much of what we see in our world today as well as throughout the rest of Scripture. As we look at this story, the theme which will overwhelm us is that of God's grace. That is the predominant theme of what we see throughout all of Scripture, but particularly in this chapter as we see the fall. But the main thing I want us to see through it all is God's grace at work in the midst of everything. So my goal for us this morning is to see the glory and sovereignty of God in the text throughout history and in our lives today. And I'll do my best to to lead us through the text in a manner that will do the text justice while also allowing us to really savor all that it has to offer us in a timely manner. So I'll ask you to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we are in Genesis chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground from whence you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust." The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and flaming sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. God, we thank you for your word that is a constant guide and helper. That when our life is down in the dust, we know that we have life in your word. So as we study your word this morning, may the truths of it ring and resound in our hearts, turning our attentions and our focus to you. God, help us to see all that you have in store for us in your word and to do it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So, just a a quick reminder, as we've seen from week one, the authorship of the book of Genesis is attributed to Moses. And the timing of it is falling somewhere either during the Exodus or, or immediately following the Exodus. And so in chapter 1, in session 1, we looked and we saw that the foundation for God's creative purpose is His glory. That as God was at work creating by His Word and and shaping and forming and filling and purposing creation, that the foundation for all of it was God's glory. And that's why it was created and that's why we are created And then we saw that Genesis lays the foundation also for God's redemptive purpose. 
That this is what God is at work doing, that as he's creating everything good, that we can look at that and see that that is where he is guiding us. Back to that right relationship when he can declare all things new. And then we move to to session two in chapter two last week where we saw that Genesis introduces us to the personal nature of God. And so moving through, we saw the unique and and purposeful ways in which Moses used the titles of God to to elaborate and and expound upon these things. Whereas in chapter 1, God is called Elohim, showing that before he was known as Yahweh, he was Elohim, sovereign creator. And then in chapter 2, we see the title of Yahweh Elohim. Showing that he is eternal sovereign creator, the one who has redeemed and is calling us and has made a covenant with us. And so Moses wants the people to see how God has been at work from the beginning. And we talked about last week how in chapter 1 we get this big picture view of creation. And then in chapter 2 we zoom in on day 6 to see God create man in his image, man and woman. And that God's role as sovereign creator initiates his redemptive purposes is how we finished out last week. Seeing that because he is the sovereign creator, that is why he wants to redeem his creation which was broken. And we get to this week where we see the brokenness. Where we start in verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So we begin with something that we haven't seen yet in the creation story. And that is a talking animal. Now, why haven't we seen this? Well, because this is not how God designed the animals. He did not design animals with anthropomorphic characteristics. That is the ability to talk with a soul. He did not design them with a soul or the ability to understand his word. He was specifically reserved those attributes for us. And that's how we see that we are the pinnacle of his creation. And so we seemingly enter into something different is happening right here. That we've been told and seen That man is the only one who can communicate. And man is the only one who can understand and hear God's word and live according to it. And as we talked about last week, be held accountable to it. And so we seemingly enter into a scene from the jungle book right here. We have a talking animal. So why is this snake talking? And many have wondered what could be at work here. And Moses, under divine inspiration obviously did not see that detail necessary for Israel to understand who it was that was talking. And why didn't he see that necessary? What detail does Moses include? He includes that the serpent, being a creation of God, was the most cunning, that he was subtle, that he was crafty, that he was shrewd. And so therefore, because the serpent was cunning and crafty, and the enemy, the, enemy, the deceiver, Satan saw it fit to use the serpent as his mouthpiece of deception. And so that is what is at work here. And we can look all throughout Scripture. We see further explanation of this in in Revelation 12, verse 9, where we read, 
So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. And we see throughout the prophets that they attribute the fall of man to Satan. And so we know that that is what is at work here, that Satan is at work through the serpent. Showing that it was widely acknowledged among the prophets in the early church that the one controlling the serpent is Satan. So the ultimate blindfold of the enemy here is to get us to question God's word. I've mentioned this throughout this series, but why? Because it is God's word that points us to his goodness, his grace, and his glory. It is God's word that speaks into our lives and points us to his purpose and design for all things. So what is that powerful thing which God gives us, created us with, and sustains us with, and by which we are saved? It is God's word. And so what is it that the deceiver, the God of this world, that's the little g, God of this world, will attack What is it that he will attack in order to keep us in our fallen state? He will attack God's word. So the first point that we see on our outline this morning is that Satan blinds us to the goodness of God's word. Pay close attention to exactly how the serpent asks the question here. First, he proposes that God's word is subject to that God's word is subject to judgment and misunderstanding. Did God really say? So this is the first tactic. That he proposes that there's something in God's word that should be questioned or a motive of God that should be questioned. So the tactic which he uses here is the same tactic which he uses to blind the mind of unbelievers, to fool people into believing false teaching, and to lure people away from the faith through means of deconstruction. And that is to simply propose that God's word is up for debate. It's the tactic which which is at work here, and that God's word is in need of questioning. The other thing which the serpent does here is to, to use God's title as Elohim, rather than Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. I mentioned this a little bit already, but we talked extensively about it in the first two weeks as we saw the the purpose behind the different titles. And that title of Lord God or Yahweh Elohim is the predominant title from chapter 2 to chapter 4, except where? In this dialogue. So again, we've talked about the purpose and intentionality with which Moses is writing these things. And that there's, he's communicating the significance in using these titles. So as I said, I pointed out these last week that, that the title of Yahweh Elohim perfectly captures the, the personal and relational and the redeemer aspects of God, as well as his role as the sovereign creator of the universe. And so... The serpent's goal is to distance the personal and the relational and the redeemer and to frame Elohim as restrictive and vindictive, a ruler who does not want what is best for his creation. So the disturbing part, though, the truly disturbing part, comes when we see Eve echo this sentiment by doing the same. 
You see, the serpent then supposedly quotes from God's word. So he, he poses the question, did, he starts the question, did God really say? And then he supposedly quotes from God's word by saying, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? See, the problem is he completely twists and misconstrues God's word so that it appears restrictive and graceless rather than freeing and grace-filled. You see, Satan blinds us to the goodness of God's word by undermining the truth of God's word. Satan blinds us to the goodness of God's word by undermining the truth of God's word. To fully appreciate this, we need to look back at what God actually said to Adam. Back in chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, where we see the Lord God took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden. So he placed him in the garden that he had created and for his flourishing, and he had created and, and developed for his purposes. And he places the man in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And we pointed out last week how we saw that, that work here is a good design of God. The work it's not meant to be laborious or controlling. And so, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. So notice again, the, the words of, of grace and goodness and abundance. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So the Lord God says... Look at all that I have created for you, for your flourishing, for your good. And because I want to protect you, this is what you must stay away from so that you will not die. See, God's word was and is an extension of his grace. And here it provided a guide for life and freedom. Whereas the, ser the serpent subjugates God's word by mischaracterizing it as a restriction of enjoyment. Did God really say you can't have any? You look at the attitudes of most people today. You know, you can scratch that. Most Christians today. And you'll see a largely indifferent, disconnected attitude toward God's word. We don't read it. We don't treasure it. We don't use it. Why? Because we too often allow ourselves to buy into the lie that it's too hard to understand, that it's too boring, that it's out of touch, that it's inapplicable with modern life. See, whether we admit it or not, this is what we're saying when we don't make time to read it, to study it, to savor it, or to hide it in our hearts. And this is the lie which we have been told from the very beginning. So you can tell this is already an issue for Adam and Eve because of Eve's response. Pick back up in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. You see, therein lies the problem. If Eve had directly quoted God's word back to the accuser, the conversation would have been over. If she would have simply said, no, that's not what God said. He has given us everything we need because he told us, you may eat from every tree in the garden. 
And because he wanted to protect us, he told us not to eat from the tree in the middle. Boom, done, conversation over. But that's not what she did, was it? See, did you notice the subtle differences that crept into Eve's retelling of God's command? See, her reciting of God's word is subtly restrictive, almost as much as the serpent's question. You see, Eve says, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. And what did God say? I have given you every tree. So the first subtle difference is that she kind of lessens God's provision. We may eat from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it. Here's another addition. Or touch it. You see, she, she heightens God's restrictiveness in her retelling of God's word. See, God didn't say you can't touch it, but she adds that into it. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, where we read, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them. That is, that God's word can be seen and God's presence and and knowledge of God can be seen everywhere in creation. Because God has shown it to them. That's what we read in Romans. And then in verse 25 of chapter 1 of Romans, we read this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. See, this that we read in Romans 1, this is true of all of us that we have exchanged the glory of God for an idol, and that idol that we have exchanged the glory of God for is ourselves. That we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and the source of that lie is ourselves. And this is why. Because knowing, this is why, knowing God's word is of infinite value. Eve's subtle retelling of God's word here is so far off base, even in just the small, subtle differences. And this is why we must know God's word and treasure it and and hold it tightly and hide it within our hearts because knowing God's word is of infinite value. See, Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, used what as his defense? his foundation, his authority. He used God's word. So the world is created, the world was created by the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he used the word to combat the accuser. And in fact, the very first verse that Jesus cites in his interaction with the devil in Matthew chapter 4 the very first verse that he cites points us to God's word as our all-sufficient, sustaining life. In fact, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Keep your finger there in Genesis. Obviously, we're not done because we're only through three verses there. But Matthew chapter 4. is where we see the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Where we see then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we know this is a famous interaction here as you go through verse 11, but they go back and forth. So the devil takes him to the the holy city and has him stand on a pinnacle. And in verse 6, he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So now he's using the same tactic that he did from the beginning by twisting God's word and using God's word, but twisting the character of God by using it. And Jesus quotes back to him in verse 7. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. So again, the devil takes him to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. In verse 10, Jesus told him, go away, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. So in this same interaction, we see our original mother and father, Adam and Eve, succumb to the effects, the temptation of the accuser because of their lack of understanding God's Word. And then there we see our more perfect Adam, Jesus, overcome the temptation of the accuser by standing firm on God's word. And as we read Wednesday night, as we've been focusing on prayer and praying God's word on Wednesday nights, we read this just this last Wednesday from Psalm 119, verses 25 through 28. My life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. I told you about my life, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. See, knowing God's word is of infinite value because as we continue reading here in Genesis 3, we see what a lack of knowledge and understanding of God's word leads us to. So we pick back up in verse 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, the heart that misunderstands God's word misunderstands God's character. Because Eve here both takes away from and adds to God's command. So, the deceiver, seeing this opening does what he does best. He deceives. So just to make sure we're tracking here, first the serpent misrepresents God's word. Then Eve misquotes God's word. So now the serpent contradicts God's word. Because Eve didn't fully know God's word, the serpent was able to even further mischaracterize not just God's word, but God himself. Because the God the serpent depicts right here is one that lied to Adam and Eve. 
and is hiding stuff from them. That's who the serpent characterizes right here. When in reality, out of his abundant grace, God had provided everything they needed and warned them of that which would harm them. So now because Eve misunderstood God's word, the enemy was able to introduce doubt of God's goodness, opening the door for her to choose her way over God's good and gracious word. You see, church, when we question God's word, everything crumbles. When we question God's word, everything crumbles. Now, I want to clarify what I mean by that. Because by this, I do not mean that we cannot bring our questions and our fears and our doubts to God's word. Because God's word is sufficient to answer those questions, those fears, and those doubts that we have. That's what we just read in Psalm 119. But what I do mean is that if we question the truth of God's word and the character of God in giving us his word, that is where we err and that we are on our own path of destruction if we do so. So when we question God's word, we question God's character. And when we do that, we justify our own standard our own intellect, and our own subjective sense of goodness over God's, over God's goodness. See, according to the serpent, God was a liar, and he was threatened by Adam and Eve because they had the ability to become like him, and that's what he was afraid of. And so this is clear as we see what happens next, as we pick back up in verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the, bo- then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See, when we lose sight of the truth of God's word, our way looks best. And it looks like the best thing that there is. And see, did you catch how Moses described Eve's view of the tree right there. She saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. Well, out of his abundant grace, God had already provided everything that they needed for life. And yet, she's looking at this one. And then we see you may eat from, God God said, you may eat from every tree except this one. See, all of creation was declared good and shouting his glory. And yet this tree, the one tree they were warned of, is the one that looks desirable. Why? Because she had fallen down the path of questioning God and questioning God's word. Not only that, but she saw that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, it said, is how Moses describes it. Which means that she had been deceived in her heart to think that there was wisdom outside of what God had already graciously given them. See, before she even takes a bite, she's already ventured off the well-lit, narrow path of God's word, and she's following her own trail. Then the one sentence, in, in one sentence, everything is shattered. As Eve takes and eats Adam, who we find out had been right there silently partaking in the events, he also takes and eats. And then just like that, they look at each other and no longer see the good image of God, but a marred reflection of it. See, the first place that they see and know evil is in themselves. 
They know what good is because they were just living in it. They know what good is because they know God's word. And here they realize that they are out of step with God's word and seeing evil in each other. You see, rebellion pits us against God's standard. And what is his standard? His word. So God gives us his standard so that we can know what is good and right and judge whether we are out of accordance with it. See, some question, but they didn't die like God said. See, this was the deception of the enemy. He gave them a half-truth. Because Adam does go on to live 930 years after this. But they died right there in that moment. At that moment, they were spiritually dead. Their perfect community with God was broken. Sin so distorts our relationship that we think that we can hide behind coverings. And that's their attempt at at forming leaves together to try to hide their sinfulness. And this is how distorted sin makes our minds, to think that we can hide. And there's a, a big overarching theological issue which I want us to wrestle with here for a moment. As we've seen from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. So what, was exist, so what existed before the beginning? God. From eternity past to eternity future, He is. Therefore, nothing happens outside of His will and His control and His power. And if this were not true, He would not be God. Because He accomplishes all things according to the counsel of His will. So this rebellion was not a surprise to God because he foreknew it. God knows the future, not just because of some crystal ball or some magic power, but because he is the one who accomplishes the future according to his plans and purposes. Why? Because he works all things primarily according to his glory. Again, as we said, that was our point from from week one. And that this, his glory, is what is best for us. It is our good. So do we see free will exhibited here in Adam and Eve? Yes, they ate free will to worship, and they worshiped themselves. That is what we see. And so does this surprise God or happen outside of his knowledge or will? Absolutely not. Why? That he might sovereignly and providentially work all things to the praise of his glory. See, God was sovereign in every moment of this. So where else do we see this at work? In the cross. That while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. That before the foundations of the world were laid, God knew that Adam and Eve would choose to worship themselves and God was sovereignly working in that to bring about his purposes to the praise of his glory and to draw them back to himself for their good. So some ask, well then why create us? Because he loves us. That before we even breathed our first breath, Before we were even a flutter in our mother's womb, he knew that we would be born in the sinfulness of our mother Eve and our father Adam. Yet in his grace, we have life. 
that we might know him and follow him. You see, in their choosing, Adam and Eve choose themselves over God, and God was sovereign in that to bring about his glory. See, we can ask all manner of hypotheticals and present any number of alternatives, but in doing so, whose interests are we serving and whose plans are we trying to fulfill? Our own. See, God does not act according to our finite thoughts or wishes, but as we've seen, according to His plans and purposes. So as finite creatures, we should not expect to fully comprehend the workings and ways of a finite God. And if we don't understand, the problem is with who? Us, not God. See, this is exactly what we read in Isaiah chapter 45, starting in verse 4, where... The Lord says, I call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen one. I give a name to you. Though you do not know me, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you though you do not know me so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, there is no one but me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Heavens sprinkle from above and let the skies shower righteousness. Let the Lord open up so that, let the earth open up so that salvation will sprout and righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. And this, this is my favorite part. Woe to the one who argues with his maker. One clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? Or, do, or does your work say he has no hands? Woe to the one who says to his father, what are you fathering? Or to his mother, what are you giving birth to? So he goes on to say, we saw last week in Isaiah 46, that I declare the end from the beginning. We've noted multiple times the intentionality and purpose behind Moses' authorship here in Genesis. And we see that come into play once again as we move quickly through the fall and have extensive detail into the results of the fall. See, we are responsible for the sin that is in our own hearts. God gave them their word and now they're going to be held accountable to God's word. And God is still sovereign over that. So if we got what we deserved, none of us would stand a chance, which is exactly what we see as we continue reading in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So the sound, which should have brought them great joy and gladness, now strikes fear in their hearts, hearts that are broken by sin. See, sin so distorts our relationship with God that we think we can hide from him. And this is where we see the downward spiral of sin's consequences we see that sin tarnishes the image of God reflected in us. Sin tarnishes the image of God reflected in us. Now, are we still made in the image of God? Absolutely. 
Do we still possess the value assigned by our creator? Yes. But that image is now tarnished and that value we no longer see in each other. Which we see as we keep reading. Verse 12. The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here we see that sin shatters community. See, one of the things we saw, one of our points last week was that we were created for a community. We were created to be in relationship with God and in relationship with each other. And now we see how sin breaks that. Not only is our relationship with God severed, but our relationship with one another is now broken because of sin. So both of these are evident as we look around at our world today, only to see all manner of conflicts and strife and false gods and false teachers, all of it symptoms of a world broken by sin. So just as the serpent talked to the woman and the woman talked to the man, no one talked to God. And thus came the fall. And so too, then we see the evidence of the fall as the man blames the woman and the woman blames the serpent, thereby blaming who? God. That's who they ultimately all point the finger at. And we see as we continue reading verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you. So where does the Lord continue to point back to? It was in his question to Adam at the beginning. Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? The Lord points to his word. So here again, as he's handing down the judgment because of sin. Because you ate, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, do not eat from The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. So here we see that sin distorts paradise. So not only is the relationship between God and man broken because of sin. Not only is our relationship with each other broken because of sin, but our relationship with nature. So now what was once natural and good, the work that Adam was placed in the garden to do, is now painful and laborious. Everything that was once functioning just as God has designed it is now going to be difficult and out of alignment. See, when we are out of alignment with God's word, that is called sin. And the just punishment for our sin is death. But as we just read, God does not hand down their death sentence immediately, does he? So God even purposes discipline as an extension of his grace. 
Because they deserved death in that very moment. But instead, they got discipline. And the purpose of that discipline was to deepen their dependence on who? God. And to turn their affections back to Him. And so it is with us. That in our lives, as we experience the results of sin and the fall, and we experience that brokenness, that is meant, that pain, that hurt, is meant to turn us back to the one who can correct it all. See, Genesis introduces us to God's justice. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So Adam, having just escaped immediate death because of God's grace, celebrates by changing his wife's name to living or life as a celebration of God's promise that through her offspring, one would come that would crush the head of the serpent. And so life was coming and God had provided and given them life and grace in this moment. And so he names her Eve. So this time, Adam had listened closely to God's word and responded according to God's promise. So then we see God perform the first sacrifice Did you see that? You might be wondering, where do we see that? Well, notice in verse 21 that the Lord God, so again, we have the covenant name, Yahweh Elohim is back now that the the conversation between the serpent and Adam and Eve is over. So the all-powerful creator and the covenant redeemer makes clothes for Adam and Eve. And what does he make them out of? Animal skins. Well, I'll draw the line of connection. Where do we get animal skins from? Animals. So this is a clear depiction of God's grace and redeeming work. Before this, no life had been taken. But God acts in a definitive way by making a sacrifice to cover his people. So may we all marvel at the grace of God on full display here in Genesis 3. Because this chapter lays the foundation for the redeeming work of God all the way up to the cross. Where we see the word made flesh hung on a tree to atone for the sin that stains our hearts. This is the gospel displayed from the beginning. This is life, that we know him because he has revealed himself to us through his word and made a way for us to be back in right relationship with him. So praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Let's pray. God, we thank you for grace. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word that you may show us your creative purpose that is your glory, that we may see how your word lays the foundation for your redemptive purpose and actions throughout history and in our lives, that it shows us your personal nature and that your word shows us how you are at work to redeem for yourself a people that your name may be made known among the nations. Why? Because you are love us. God, help us to rest in your grace. 
I pray that there's anyone here that does not know you as Savior. It does not know the grace of which we've talked about today, that you would draw them to yourself, opening their eyes, taking off the blindfold that the God of this world has placed on them because of his twisting of your word and his doubting of your word and help them to realize that you have made a way. And that way is by sending yourself and the person of Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.